Good morning. One of the uh, one of the things that you may not know about the way I prepare sermons is the way I plan teaching series. That is about twice a year. I go away and um, and seek the Lord to know what what He has for us next. What needs what I need to teach. Uh, what passages I assemble series and take um, take specific messages and I don't I don't do all of the preparation I, I do that week by week but I, I I select the text and build a series and and have a, a theme an idea already in place for each message. A lot of times when that happens, um, God takes me to some place and I I think I I don't know why this is. And I don't see the, the relevance of this passage. And, and yet I've learned over the years that, that while I'm planning for what feels like months away, um, God always seems to have impeccable timing. Um, this morning is a lesson that I've, I've wanted to teach for a while. And um, this, this sermon was scheduled for this date uh, probably the first part of February. And yet this week, as events have unfolded, um, I again see the Lord's perfect timing. Earlier this week, there was a shooting here in Tulsa at the St. Francis Natalie building. Four people murdered in a shocking tragedy. A distraught probably disturbed, patient in pain, killed his doctor and three other people. Then yesterday I, I got the news of, uh, of a fellow pastor here in Tulsa. Um, who had three grandchildren in Texas murdered this week by an escaped inmate from a Texas prison. I can't even begin to fathom A grandfather's grief at losing his grandkids in such a way. I don't much like this world. Evil has become shameless in its move into public behavior. Death, death is never meant to be natural, but it's certainly not meant to be shocking as we have seen so many times in recent days. How do we respond? I'm in a series of messages right now that we've entitled Enduring Passions. And these messages are, are based loosely on our church motto, knowing God, sharing life, changing the world. We looked at two words related to knowing God, the word worship, and the word obey. And then we've spent the last two weeks talking about sharing life. And we looked at the word give, both spontaneous giving and planned giving, and the word love. But we come today to the last part of that motto, probably the, the part that seems to be the most audacious, changing the world. How exactly do we go about that? 
And the word for the day is pray. But I want to talk to you about prayer in a way that maybe you haven't heard before, because I think for many of us, um, our prayer life is pretty anemic. And by anemic, I don't just mean that we don't pray as often as we should. I mean that we don't pray what we should pray. You see, most of us have fallen into a trap of, of treating prayer as though God was an ATM. And we just have to push the right buttons to get what we need. And so we go to God, maybe regularly, maybe every day, and we bring to Him a laundry list of circumstantial requests. Aunt Susie has a bad back, and Cousin Joe wants safe travels on his vacation, and on and on. I need a new job. I want a new car. Listen, there's nothing wrong about praying about such things. There's nothing wrong about praying about our circumstances. But that's not what prayer is really all about. You see, one of the common questions that I've heard over and over throughout my life is this question, if God knows everything, what's the point of praying? Well, honestly, if your prayers are merely a compilation of requests to change your circumstances, then it's a legitimate question. What is the point of that? God knows what He wants to do in your life. He knows what you need. So what is the point of praying? And if prayer was simply a process of trying to convince God to give you what you think you want, it would be kind of a pointless activity. What point would there be? And yet prayer is meant to be so much more, so much different from that. It's about maintaining our connection to God more than it is about giving God our shopping list. There's a story in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus tells a parable. Now, a parable is a story with one point. It's not an allegory. All the parts of the story don't represent something. It's just an illustration to make a point. But the problem, well, the, the, the parable that shows up in the first verses of Luke chapter 18 doesn't show up anywhere else. Luke's the only one that records it. But the problem with this parable is that if, if you only do casual Bible study, one of the problems of that is that we often fall victim to a sort of subconscious um, separation of stories that come through uh, verse and chapter divisions. You do realize that when the Bible was originally written, it didn't have those divisions. Paul's letters were simply a single letter from start to finish. There was a flow to it. Oftentimes, we don't understand a passage that we're looking at because we start with verse 1 and it seems to be a standalone story, and yet we don't understand the flow of the context. That's what happens in this, in, in this verse. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. I'm going to tell you how it's usually taught, and then I'm going to tell you why that's wrong. Okay, you didn't realize today that you were going to have your theology corrected, and I'm going to give you something that maybe you've not seen before. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them, Luke is speaking about Jesus. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect any person, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Now, here's the way this story is usually taught. As a standalone story, we read this parable and we, are, we take away the lesson that when we want God to do something, we just need to pray harder. We need to pray more often. We need to, to chase him down. Now, remember, I said this is not an allegory. So this judge that we'll see in this story does not represent God. In fact, Jesus is going to make the example that he's giving, he's giving a story of someone who by persistence gets her answer from a reluctant judge, but that's not the situation we find ourselves in in relation to God. But when we leave this story by itself, it appears that this is just about praying harder so that eventually we overwhelm God's unwillingness to do what we want, and we bring him around until he gives us what we've asked for. I want you to go back with me into Luke chapter 17, and I want you to pretend like there's no chapter division here. Because the parable of Luke 18 flows out of a conversation that Jesus is having in Luke 17. So let's start at verse 20, and I want to read this part of the story. Now, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. Now, let me clarify something here because the New Testament teaches us that the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is the righteous rule and reign of God in the hearts of his people. That is, the kingdom is invisible, but it is present in us and through us. But Jesus gets a question from the Pharisees, and what they're really asking, they didn't understand that the coming of the Messiah was going to be in two comings. The first coming would be as a suffering servant. The second coming would be as a conquering king. So they're asking a question, basically because they're under Roman oppression. Their question is, so when is the Messiah coming? In other words, when is God going to intervene and make things right? Now, we're 2,000 years after Jesus, but frankly, even though we understand the coming of the Messiah as a suffering servant, we're still waiting for the coming of the Messiah as a conquering king. And so when things happen around us, like we've seen just in the last few days, there is in our minds the question, when is God going to do something to make this right? And Jesus answers the question this way. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. All right? He's saying it's already present in the hearts of God's people. Then he said to the disciples, verse 22, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not leave and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part, of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's the first coming. Verse, 25, uh, verse 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, and they were building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who will be on the housetop with his goods in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever strives to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. You see, the question that sets the context for this parable is that Jesus is talking about what we would refer to as the second coming, what the Pharisees described as the coming of the kingdom. The bottom line question is, when is God going to make this crappy world right again? That's what they're asking. And he says, well, first of all, God's timing is impeccable. 
It will happen when it happens. But what you need to understand is that when it happens, it will happen swiftly. Just like the moment that Noah entered into the ark, then the rain started and it didn't stop. Just like the day that Lot escaped out of Sodom and fire and brimstone began to fall from the sky and it didn't stop until judgment was complete. He's suggesting that there is a coming judgment on this world. There is a time where suddenly the Son of Man will be revealed. He will break through the clouds and there will be a moment of separation that will be permanent. Those who are a part of the kingdom, those who have the, reign, the righteous reign and rule of God in their hearts will be separated for eternity in the presence of God. Those who have been satisfied to be separated from God will be separated eternally from God. And it will happen in an instant. And so, in the conversation about the kingdom, now let's come back to the parable. Because now there's a different point to it than just pray harder until you can convince God to give you what you want. Let's look at verse 1. This calls us to what I've called a kingdom mindset. 18 verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. You see, the parable continues the teaching of Jesus in chapter 17 regarding the timing. And really what they're asking is they're asking about the apparent delay in the coming of the kingdom. See, that's, not, that, that's really the issue. They're not asking a chronological question about about when this is going to happen, they're really asking a life question about why does it seem to be delayed? When is God going to make this right? Luke himself was writing this gospel. Now remember, he's looking back on the words and the conversations of Jesus, but he's writing this gospel a full generation after Jesus was on the earth. And so he's writing to a church in a historical context where the delay of the second coming, as they saw it, they thought it would happen in their lifetimes. It appeared to be delayed, and there was a serious problem flowing out of that. Christians were under severe persecution, and some of them were beginning to deny their faith. This was not a chronological problem. This was a life problem. Hope was fading for them, and apostasy was rising. 2,000 years later, I think the same thing is happening among Christians in this generation. Is anything ever going to happen to change the direction that we're on? Does this moral decline, does this cultural uh, demise, is anything going to change it? Will things ever be right? Why is God delaying? That's the question. One writer put it this way, and, and this just connected with me. He said, when the sun is shining, delay poses no problems. But a thousand years go by in one short hour when you're waiting for the lions. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable so that you'll remember that you ought to pray and not become discouraged. He's saying that you should be a person of continual, not continuous, not non-stop prayer, but continual prayer, meaning daily prayer. He's calling us to not a casual passing request, but diligence in asking something that I think most of us have forgotten to ask for. What? I've been praying my whole life. I know how to pray. What, what have I forgotten? Well... Let's look at this. Turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, we have Luke's account of what is called the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes it's called the model prayer. We usually read it from Matthew, and when we quote it, it's the Matthew version, because that's a little bit longer. Luke's is abbreviated a bit, but, but I want you to notice something. In Luke chapter 11, it says this, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, 
when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation. Now granted, Luke's version is shorter than Matthew's, it's a little abbreviated, but here's the point. We've figured out how to ask God for our daily bread. We know how to do that, to ask God to meet our physical and material needs. We know how to pray about spiritual warfare. That is to help us forgive people because we've been forgiven, to be in right relationships with people because we're in a right relationship with God. We know how to ask God to protect us from temptation, to keep us strong so that we make good choices. But there's a part of that prayer, both in Matthew and Luke, that I think we have forgotten that we've sort of glanced past and not noticed. And it's a simple phrase, your kingdom come. I think this may be the most neglected, yet possibly the most vital part of the model prayer that Jesus gives us to teach us how to pray. Your kingdom come. We live in a day where we feel the pressure of a world marked by evil and wickedness. How do we keep from being discouraged? How do we avoid despair? Very simply put, it's this phrase in the prayer, your kingdom come. You see, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that the first coming of the Messiah, that Jesus came in what Paul called the fullness of time. What he means by that phrase is that God had orchestrated all of the circumstances of human history. There was the almost global peace because of the Roman Empire, which allowed the gospel to spread easily and quickly. There was a virtually universal language of Greek that happened to be there at just that right time. All of the, all of the earthly circumstances necessary came together so that at a single moment, a, a moment pregnant with opportunity, in the fullness of time, the Messiah came. Why would we doubt that the second coming of the Messiah would be any less perfectly designed to have the fullness of time and all uh, historical circumstances come together at precisely the right moment? We don't doubt that. God's timing is perfect. So why do we pray for thy kingdom come? I mean, if God's already determined it, and here's why. This is the key. We pray your kingdom come Because that is how we connect with the promise that the world the way it is, is not the final answer. This is not how it's always going to be. And yet, we live in a generation where Christians... I think, are throwing up their hands and saying, I give up. It's too hard. Nothing ever changes. Good never seems to win. Evil seems to always hold sway. That's why he calls us to daily prayer that begins with a higher priority than even, Lord, give me my daily needs. This comes earlier in the prayer. It's a higher priority. It's the call, God, your kingdom come. That is for us the way we bring ourselves back to the rock-solid place where the promises of God are sufficient for us to hold on to. It's where we find our place in prayer that allows us to get up and go back out into the world. He says you should never give up and be discouraged. Well, how do you do that? You do that with a daily plea to God for his kingdom to come. His kingdom is going to come at precisely the right time. The daily plea is to not to convince God to move up his timetable. The daily plea for God's kingdom to come is, is for us to reconnect our souls with what's true so that we can get dressed and go out into the world and stand for truth and live like Jesus. You see, our, our church motto, knowing God, sharing life, 
changing the world. Changing the world, isn't that a little audacious? I mean, really, that sounds almost like it's more public relations than reality, except if we believe that God put us here, he filled us with his spirit, he left us to live life in this world so that we could be Jesus with skin on for a generation that doesn't know him, we are changing the world. Didn't you see the baptisms today? Those are people that are not going to hell, they're going to heaven. That is changing the world. But how do we do that? How do we maintain our determination to face what we have to face? To go back out there with every story that overwhelms us, that just breaks our spirit. We come to the place where we find our, ourselves before the throne room of grace going, God, your kingdom come. What does that look like? Well, Matthew tells us in his version of the prayer, his kingdom comes when there's obedience to the will of God on earth like there is in heaven. I do truth currents every week. Commentary on how we can think biblically about current events. And people occasionally will ask me this question. They'll say, well, how do you keep doing it? And don't you get discouraged? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes I do. I mean, they, they just won't keep, quit giving me stuff to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes I feel discouraged. But the answer to my discouragement is not to run harder, to work more. It's not even to pray more but it's to pray something that I had forgotten to pray for a very long time. To pray for God's kingdom to come. And when I find myself praying about that, before I pray about any of the circumstantial requests that are on my list, before I pray about my, my friend's needs or my neighbor's needs or my family's needs, before I pray about my needs, before I give God my circumstances, I start with God's plan. Lord, I'm on board. May your kingdom come. I'm, I'm standing with, I'm holding that with all of my might. That's how I keep trying to live like Jesus. That's how I keep trying to stand for what's true. That's how I keep trying to minister to a generation that doesn't want to be ministered to. That's why I keep trying to tell people about Jesus even when they, they seem to not be interested. How do you stay at it? How do you not just throw up your hands and say, what's the point of it all? Because every day in my prayer, I'm reminded... God's kingdom is on its way. It's here now, invisibly, it's in the hearts of his people. But it's going to be on display soon enough. And I will not let the enemy, no matter how shameless and public his evil becomes, I might be distressed, I might be discouraged. But I refuse to fall into despair. You can't help being discouraged occasionally. That, that's, that's a function of emotion. And sometimes, sometimes my emotions are just overwhelmed. But despair, that's when you throw up your arms and you say, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. There's nothing more to do here. See, that's where the parable comes in. The parable is a kingdom message. It says in, in, in verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my opponent. For a, a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect any person, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. 
this judge lacked the most fundamental requirement of being a judge. That is, he had no reverence for God. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the beginning uh, of wisdom, the beginning of, of, of understanding is, is, the, is the reverence of God, the fear of the Lord. This is a judge who didn't acknowledge that he stood accountable before God. He didn't have any reverence for people, which meant that he was not a God that showed mercy. I mean, not a, a judge that showed mercy. He was utterly unqualified to be a judge, and yet here he was. The widow could be any of the poor, the needy, the helpless, the oppressed, the overlooked, or the hated in any generation. She had no other hope for justice than from this judge. And persistence was her only asset in the battle for her vindication. She didn't have the means to bribe him. She didn't have any influence to leverage against him. All she had was persistence. Persistence. You can imagine this in your mind as Jesus told the story. There she was standing outside the door of his courtroom when he finished for the day and came out. And she began to remind him of her case and plead for justice. She knew where he shopped in the marketplace. And there she was waiting for him as he passed through the market. And she came up beside him and began to remind him of her case and asking for justice. She knew where he ate dinner at night, and so she was there waiting at the restaurant when he arrived to remind him of her case and to plead for justice. When he left the restaurant to walk home, she followed him all the way home, reminding him why she needed justice and why he was the one to provide it. And, and it, it's fascinating here because, because the, the Greek actually is very picturesque. What, says, what it says here is, uh, he, says, uh, he says to himself, I mean, this is his internal conversation, he says, I don't fear God or respect any person, but because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. The Greek phrase there is literally, uh, she will hit me under the eye. Now, let me explain that because there was, no, there was no chance of this widow physically assaulting the judge. That's not what this means. But hit me under the eye, it was a colloquial expression, a kind of slang term to describe those dark circles under your eyes that come, that come went to you when you're worn down by exhaustion. He's suggesting he looks in the mirror in the morning and he's got dark circles under his eyes because he can't sleep because this woman, everywhere he goes, she's laying out her case and arguing for justice. Her continuous badgering has left him exhausted until he's actually got dark circles under his eyes. He gave her justice not because he was interested in doing the right thing, but because she wore him out. Now, Jesus wants us to understand, he's going he's to take us to a kingdom motivation. And in verse 6, he's going to turn to the explanation of the story. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now, verse 7 and 8, he's going he's to tell us how this judge does not represent God. But here's the point that he's trying to make. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. In other words, if the unjust judge yielded to the continuous cries of the widow who was a stranger to him and finally granted her the vindication she desired, how much more will God, who is just and who is a loving father, Hear the cries of his chosen children to, who petition him for relief from the troubles of this world. In other words, in this story, the problem is not with God. Now, let's talk about this justice that she's asking for. The word that's translated justice in this story can also mean rescue. She's asking the judge to rescue her from her circumstance that requires his action. This word shows up in a couple of places that are really important that I, I want you to, to know about. In Acts chapter 7, we have a sermon delivered by Stephen. Stephen has been arrested, and before he is stoned to death as the first Christian martyr, he preaches a sermon, and in that sermon, he goes back and basically reviews the history of Israel through the Old Testament, coming to the gospel that he presents because the Messiah has come in Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, verse 24, he's telling the story of Moses. And Moses 
intervened one day when he was walking by and saw an Egyptian master, an overlord, um, a foreman, if you will, uh, whipping a Jewish slave, an Israelite slave in Egypt. Moses jumps into the situation. He intervenes by killing the, the Egyptian and rescuing the slave. That's the same word that, that's used here. Now, a more significant place where that word shows up is in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we have uh, the story of, of the first six seals. Now, if you don't know the book of Revelation, that may not mean anything to you, but, but there is a scroll that gives the meaning and purpose of human history. And the only one worthy to break the seven seals that, that keep that information hidden is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this is the story of, of each seal being broken and a different piece of the story being given about the meaning of human history. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we have the fifth seal that's broken. And this is what it says. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar, that is the place of worship before the throne of God, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. He saw martyrs from every generation that were right there at the foot of the throne of God. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord? holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? It's a question that even in heaven, I find that strangely compelling, that even in heaven right now, because the timing of the coming of the kingdom is only in God's hand, the martyrs are asking, how long? When will you avenge us? The world killed us because of the word of God and because of our testimony. The word justice is about rescuing God's people, but it's also about bringing judgment upon those who abuse God's people. Now, if we take this into our own hands, if we were to form a Christian militia and go out and just start shooting people that differed from us or who uh, were mean to us or who persecuted us, that if we took matters into our own hands, that would be nothing more than revenge. But when that same action is left in the hands of a perfect and righteous God, then it's justice. We're not called to take matters into our own hands. So how do we, as people who who can't make things right in our own power, how do we live in this, not, it's not a delay, but how do we live in this time while we're waiting for God to intervene and make things right? His timing is impeccable, but how do we live from now until then? Your kingdom come. That prayer is the key to our ability to stay grounded in the Word of God. And here's why it's exceptionally important. The final question of this parable, really the point that tells me that my understanding of this being connected to chapter 17 is the correct interpretation, is because Jesus finishes verse, verse 8 by saying, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, in Greek... There is um, actually an article in front of the word faith, and I'm, I'm disappointed that it doesn't show up here in the, in, in the translation because I think, I think it's significant. Really, this is what the quick question says. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? See, for Jesus, this was the point of the parable. He's not telling us to pray like this persistent widow because we're trying to convince an unwilling God to come around to our side to do what we want. What he's suggesting is that, uh, that, that we should follow her model knowing that we don't have an unwilling 
Father, but that we come to him every day with this prayer, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Why? Because he knows we live in a difficult generation. And as we cry out on a daily basis, this aspect of prayer that we often have forgotten, when we say, your kingdom come, God, come make things right on the earth, what it does is it seals the connection between our soul and the promises of God so that we can go out and be like Jesus and stand for truth and do what we are are meant to do to change the world. Because when Jesus comes, his question is, will my people have such a heart for the coming of the kingdom that when the kingdom arrives, what I'll find is a faithful church with their eyes on the skies looking for that kingdom? Let's see, let's go back to the, to the, to the, to the examples in chapter 17. The world was caught off guard when it started to rain in Noah's day. But Noah knew it was coming. Why? Because he had the word of God. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were caught off guard the day that the fire and brimstone began to fall and judgment came. But Lot knew that it was coming. Why? Because he had been given the word of God. When we pray, your kingdom come, the Spirit of God meets us in our despair. And He meets us in our brokenheartedness. And He meets us in the pain that we see all around us. And He says, You have my word. And it's true. You have my promise. And it's good. You have my guarantee. Because that guarantee was written in blood. I need to pray, your kingdom come, not because I'm trying to convince God to speed up His timetable, but because I need the confidence to know That when I go out, when I try and live like Jesus, when I dig in my heels and try and stand for what's true, I have to know an unshakable confidence that there is a day coming when God will make this crap right. I'm tired of stories of doctors killed by disturbed patients, of grandchildren killed by escaped inmates, of school shootings, of tortures and wars, of persecutions of believers. You know, there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 100 years than in the 1900 years before that combined. We talk about the persecution under the Roman Empire, but it is is nothing numerically compared to what happens every single day in this generation. How long? Lord, let your kingdom come. You know why I need to pray that? So that when Jesus does come, He'll find me still being faithful because I trusted His promise. What's it going to look like when He makes things right? Well, the Bible tells us that too. There's going to be a day Willingly for some of us, unwillingly for others. Where every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. King of kings. Lord of lords. 
I'm telling you folks, something like 95% of all the promises of God in the Bible have been fulfilled and have been fulfilled dead on in a perfect way. That's why the last few percentage points of promises that aren't yet fulfilled, in my mind, they are rock solid guarantee. God has never broken his word. He's not gonna start now. Knowing God, sharing life, changing the world. We change the world when we begin to pray for his kingdom to come. And that strengthens us and emboldens us to go be Jesus in this generation and to stand for truth. Keep praying your circumstantial prayer requests because God is interested in those things. But if we're serious about changing the world, we've got to bring the kingdom mindset back into our prayers. And we need to ask God to come in the fullness of time. I don't know if it'll be in our generation. Lots of generations that went before us didn't get to see it. I don't know if we will either, but you know what? Whether he comes in our generation, and I really think he might, but whether he does or not, our call is simply to live in the truth of the promise and to live like that sky is going to split open. The world is going to be completely caught off guard when it happens, just like the world that felt it rain <laughs> that first time. We're not going to be caught off guard because we've been given the word of God. We've been given the promises of God and we've been praying for the kingdom of God to come every single day of our lives. And when he comes, may we be the people who are holding the certainty of the faith for him to find. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I don't know what to tell you except to say that there is a day coming where the opportunity to know Jesus will not be available anymore. If you believe anything at all about the truth of the Bible and the truth of God's Word, that should scare you to death. Now, I'm not here trying to scare you to death, but I am here to try and tell you the truth. If you don't know Jesus, I don't know why you would wait because I can't promise you based on the word of God that you have many more days to wait in and wait for what? What is it you're waiting for? Jesus is life. Won't you come and meet him? We'd love to introduce you to our Jesus. We'll answer your questions as best we can. But I'm telling you, look at the world around us. If God judged the, the generation of Noah, if God judged the generation of Lot, I'm, to, I'm here to tell you, we're not far away from the judgment of God on this generation. Why would you wait? Let us tell you about Jesus. Maybe you need to be a part of a church. Man, Christian life was not meant to be lived in isolation. It is a team sport. We do this shoulder to shoulder. Why don't you come and talk to one of our pastors? A week from today is our next Evergreen 101 class, and we'll walk you through the process of how you can be a part of this church, accountable in mutual shared life with the people who are called Evergreen. We'd love to share that with you. For the rest of us, if you say, well, I, I am a follower of Jesus and I, I'm a member of this church, what does this mean for me? Well, it means for one thing that your prayer life needs to be transformed to have a kingdom focus. With more priority than your, your, your laundry list of needs, your, your requests that you have for your friends and your neighbors and your family, you can do all of that, but but we need, to, we need to make sure that we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. Because that's what connects us to the promises of God. We need that to get through this generation.
I don't mean to be manipulative. I don't, I don't ever want that to be the case. I'm not trying to get traffic to walk to the altar. But I will say this this morning. I think some of us ought to come to this sacred space and kneel down. And just say, Lord, I really want your kingdom to come. And I really need the bolstering of my spirit by the reminder that you're always faithful to your word. Let me just invite you. If you want to revolutionize your prayer life, if you want to change the world, why don't you come down here and start as God's chosen ones as we cry out for the coming of his kingdom in this world to make things right. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. Our pastors will be here. They'll pray with you or they'll step aside and let you pray by yourself, whatever you'd like. If you need to know Jesus, please, please be reconciled to God. Now is your time. Father, thank you in this moment and in this place what you are doing here. The presence of your Spirit among us. Father, in, in our brokenness, we find our way to your Word. In our discouragement, we're reminded of your promises. Lord, we may occasionally be discouraged but we will find our way into your presence and we will never give in to despair. We will not give up. We will live and die by what is true. We will be the people of God, come what may. But Father, especially for our brothers and sisters who are much more severely persecuted than we are, we pray with the martyrs who are already at your feet how long? How long till you make things right? We know it comes in the fullness of time. Give us the strength to be the people of God until that day. So that when the Son of Man returns, when he breaks through the sky, he will find the faith on the earth. Lord, let the people of Evergreen be in the heart of that. This is our prayer. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.